Pretty Close Trap Line Chatter is a program that involves you. From time to time, you might have a personal message to send to a friend or a loved one in the village or the surrounding area. Well, you can do just that on KJNP every evening. Only message we have tonight going out to Jeremiah on the Shinjik from Jim Perman at Fort Yukon. I made it to Fort Yukon. Should be heading back up tomorrow. One year, I kind of got an idea. You always try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure. And I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fist trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. Thank God. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. There's structure from Herb Lennon. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because working ahead of time to build big traffic. If you got very much the same as Jeff, you got more traffic. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my crew are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, getting better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back from Alaska, this is the Trapping Today podcast. I am Jeremiah Wood. Great to have you here. Yeah, I went trapping in Alaska. The absolute uh, dream had for a very long time a lot to talk about there but first let's talk about our sponsors Cots Brothers Lures K-A-A-T-Z B-R-O-S dot com Cots Bros is the place to go to get your trapping supplies if you want to get started on the trap line if you uh, are just looking for a place to have great service from great guys who have excellent products check them out CotsBros.com trap smarter work harder enjoy the success that follows Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. Big auction coming up. Check them out at furharvesters.com. We have lots to talk about with Fur Harvesters and some of the announcements that they have coming up soon. And our new sponsor, OnX Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS unit with tracking, waypoints, base maps, uh, like you have aerial imagery and topo maps. And the big thing with Onyx is you also have landowner information. That's their big deal is you can see whose land you are hunting or trapping on. And that's huge for us trappers. So this is basically an app that you use on your phone that has fully functioning GPS, whether you have cell service or not. You can make tracks. You can mark all your trap locations. You can tell whose land you're on. And you can look at all the aerial photography and everything. It is just awesome. Go to onxmaps.com to uh, subscribe. They get a free trial there. If you uh, sign up for uh, a membership, they will give you a 20% discount if you use the promo code TRAP. That's T-R-A-P. That is for you listeners of Trapping Today. So go to onxmaps.com and uh, sign up use the promo code trap and check them out you guys if you're not using onyx on the trap line or while you're out hunting you are missing out so uh, get on that and let me know if you sign up i'd love to hear about it and i'd love to talk more about it got lots to say about this this uh, this whole program it just opens up a lot of new opportunities uh, for us on the trap line and just being out in the woods in general so let's talk about trapping guys I just got back from Alaska. Um, some of you know that. Some of you actually have uh, been emailing back and forth for a few guys that uh, have listened for a long time, but I didn't really say much about it. Uh, this is really the first trip that I've ever taken. It's really the first vacation I've ever gone on by myself, believe it or not. Um, I've been focused for a lot of years now on just trying to uh, d- establish sort of a home site and, and work in my job. Uh, build some savings up and and starting a farm and doing all that other stuff that 
uh, when I, you know, I, I got back into trapping and I've been doing more and more trapping every year, but, uh, I never really went on a, a vacation and I, for anything. And I, I've obviously never gone to, for an out of state trapping trip or anything like that. So this was kind of a big deal. This trip originated a long, quite a long time ago though. So if you guys go back to uh, episode 75 of the podcast, it's called uh, something like the Alaska Wilderness Trapping, uh, something something along those lines. I interviewed a guy named Jim Furman, who's up in Fairbanks and Fort Yukon, Alaska. And Jim has been a trapper up there since he was a teenager. He's now in his 60s. And he just had an incredible story. Basically, he did what I have dreamed about doing from the time I was uh, in high school or before high school. And uh, what a lot of you guys have also dreamed about doing, and, and of course most of us have never done it. If we did, there'd be more people in Alaska than there are right now for sure. So uh, it, it, it's hard, you know, it's something that, that's just a, it, it's, it's a dream, but in reality, to, in today's world with the way fur prices are and everything, you, you just can't, you can't do that. Um, live in a remote place like that. Uh, there, there aren't a lot of jobs. It's a very poor area. Uh, you can't sell fur and make a living doing it. You might be able to get by for a couple months out of the year, but then you got to work elsewhere. There's a few people who do it. They, uh, they trap in the winter and they have good jobs in the summertime, and that works out. But it's a big sacrifice, and you have to be pretty nomadic. You have to be moving around and living in different places at different times of the year. Uh, but but I always wanted to experience it, and after I uh, interviewed Jim and we we talked on the phone, we actually talked before the interview. Uh, when I was reading, I did an, uh, an overview in a previous podcast on the book by Richard K. Nelson, who uh, was an anthropologist. The book was called Hunters of the Northern Forest, and Nelson studied the uh, the Gwich'in people up in the interior of Alaska along the Yukon River and looked into their survival methods and everything and, and sort of how they lived their lives and he spent a lot of time looking going into the trapping and how they trapped and how they used trapping and selling fur to make a good part of their living. And I, I went through that and talked a lot about that book. And after that, uh, Jim Jim had, you know, he's been a regular reader of the pot of the uh the website trapping today over the years and then listener of the podcast and he listened to that episode and emailed me and talked about the uh, fact that his trap line was very close to that area so i called him up and we started talking and and we've we talked on the phone for hours it's just fascinating uh, and then if you listen to the interview he agreed to do an interview after that and if you listen to that you i think you'll be pretty interested in a lot of the a lot of the the stories that he has about trapping up there. So around that time, that was April of last year, of 2019, uh, he invited me to go up there and trap. And uh, that's kind of a big deal, especially for someone that, you know, you don't know super well uh, to to actually invite a guy out there. Um, That was was pretty awesome. And so I, I kind of uh, it kind of lit a spark in me. I really wanted to do it. Uh, I had to talk it over with the wife, obviously, and because it's a big decision. Because I, to go that far, um, obviously, first I have to take a lot of time off from my job, uh, take essentially all of my vacation time I saved up for the year, and then she she is left with taking care of the kids and the the cattle, and the house and the keeping the driveway cleared in the middle of the winter and all that. So for me to go off on a trapping vacation is a big sacrifice for everybody. Uh, she she gave me the go-ahead. That's why I love her. Why I love her so much. She's a, a huge enabler in my trapping habits. Uh, if you have a wife like that, uh, you're a very lucky, very, very lucky man. So uh, I got uh, we agreed that I was going to do it. Uh, Jim and I talked about timing. February was a pretty good time that worked well with uh, my work schedule as well as um, river freeze up you know we talked about maybe in December but but uh, some years the river's not quite frozen up in December and you, you don't know whether you can get up to his cabin where he traps so we talked over for a while decided on February and then basically from April of last year until just a few weeks ago 
I I saved a couple thousand dollars for the trip, and basically spent every single day in some aspect or another preparing myself for the trip. And a lot of it was just mentally. I was just so psyched up I, every single day that I, every day I thought, I'm going to Alaska. This is awesome. All right, what do I got to do? What am I, how am I going to be prepared? I can't wait till I get there and all this. And so I, I went through that whole thing. Even this fall when I was trapping in Maine, I just kept thinking about trapping in Alaska. It just, uh, it captivates a guy. So I got the money. I got the preparations made. Actually ended up... Um, you know, this would be something impossible to do unless you have someone to invite you out there, because uh, to to you know, I couldn't bring traps. Um, I couldn't I couldn't bring all the equipment that I would need to do this, and snowmobiles and everything else just wouldn't happen. So uh, basically, all that I had to do is get myself there and get my warm clothing, as much warm clothing as I could bring, um, and I also shipped up uh, oh about five boxes of food. Um, just to have uh, have a little extra and some things that I have some diet restrictions I had to deal with, so I I, I ship some food there, so so we'd be able to work through that. So shipping food, uh, bringing clothing, warm clothing for cold weather, um, lining up to, uh, to borrow some other clothing, getting the plane ticket, getting the logistics, uh, actually two different plane tickets, and a bunch of different logistics and driving and a bus and all of that finally got it all kind of planned out and the time came to leave so i i mentioned this i i hinted at this for a little while in in previous podcast episodes about i was going to be going away for some trip and i never said where that was i i kind of picked up that idea from locklear in his trapping radio podcast and uh, i've listened to that for a very long time and he He'll go on. Uh, Clint goes on a lot of trips. Um, he he goes. He visits a bunch of different places, uh, very interesting places. But he never tells anybody when he's going or or when he's gone. Um, you usually don't find out where he is until after he get, he gets back. I thought about that a while. Like, wh- why is he doing that? And then I realized, you know, you never know who's listening to this stuff. You know, I get like twelve hundred plus people listen to this podcast every week. And, uh, you know, we're all, they're all awesome people for them. Everybody that I know that listens to this podcast, pretty awesome. Um, great people to talk with, uh, but who knows, you could have some anti crazy person and you, you talk about going, uh, being gone from your home, uh, even though the odds are super slim, it just makes a guy maybe feel a little uneasy when you're going to a place where you're not going to have any, even any cell service, uh, no, phone, no way to contact your family, um, except maybe intermittently, and you're going to be gone that whole time. I just don't want to have that added pressure, added stress that somebody could, some crazy dude that listens to the podcast and hates trapping is going to come to my house and do something stupid while I'm gone. So, you know, there's essentially a 0.0000001 chance that that would ever happen, but I didn't feel like taking it, so... Anyway, that's why I didn't say much, but I, some of you guys emailed me, you're like, you're, you're going to Alaska, aren't you? <laughs> and I couldn't say, I couldn't lie to you. So I, uh, there's, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 or 12 of you that emailed the, that I got back to you and said, yeah, I'm going, I'm excited about it, super excited about it. And, and so for the last, um, I think four episodes of the podcast, those are episodes that I recorded previous to leaving for Alaska and I just played them. They played, and they automatically uploaded while I was gone. So for uh, basically 20, 18 to 20 days, I was completely out of cell service, uh, out of internet, and had no contact with the outside world. Even when I got out to the village, I didn't have, have uh, cell phone service in the village uh, because uh, apparently they have some village, some wireless network there that I've never, it's called CGI, I've never heard of, and they do not support uh, Verizon phones. So um, I had zero contact, and you were just hearing episodes that I'd previously recorded, and those uh, those kind of just aired. They, they I set them up to go up on their own. Um, I did get a bunch of emails when I got back, uh, even though I didn't, I didn't really say much about emailing. I knew uh, some guys would, and I'm, I'm, I was happy to 
get back into service and have a whole pile of emails to read and get caught up in and uh, a lot of great stuff from you guys. So I will give my email address now. I didn't give it for a few weeks because I didn't want to get too overloaded and uh, and you weren't going to get a response anyway at that time. But it's jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. If you have trapping questions, comments, you want to send me pictures of your catch, all that stuff, um, you can do that. I, I love to hear from you. Try to get back to you as soon as I can. Sometimes it takes up to a week, but... Uh, other times I get back to you right away, um, and uh, and you can expect to hear from me within a week. So let's talk about the details of getting out to Alaska to the trap line. So just to get there was kind of a big deal. I, from northern Maine, um, I looked at, you know, I could have flown out of northern Maine if I had like twelve or $1,400 to blow, but I actually got a super cheap ticket plane ticket to fly from Boston to Fairbanks, Alaska for uh, less than $500, if you can believe that. It was just uh, unbelievable to me. I flew out on Super Bowl Sunday. That may have had something to do with it. And uh, it's in the middle of the winter. Not a lot of people um, other than locals are flying into Fairbanks in the middle of the winter. So that was good. But the problem is I had to get to Boston. I'm I'm quite a ways from Boston. So um, I I ended up, I had to drive, uh, I didn't want to park in Boston, and so I, I drove my truck down to uh, Bangor, which is a town, or city, small city in Maine, and I parked at a bus station, it was like three hours to get there, and a good friend of, uh, uh, of mine, actually uh, Cole Porter, from who you've heard on this podcast before, his brother, uh, lives in that area, and he let me park my truck at his house, and he gave me a ride to the bus station. I uh, got on the bus, and it was about a, I think about a five-hour bus ride to uh, Boston, Mass, to the airport. They, it's actually pretty slick. They just, uh, it's like eighty dollars round trip, and they drive you right to the airport um, with your bags and everything. Um, stop you right in front of the uh, the terminal, and you jump out, and you're ready to go. So I did that. I had everything packed, ready to go. And uh, actually, it was kind of crazy traveling with all that bulky equipment because I had all the cold weather gear. And uh, Jim did lend me some stuff when I got there, but I still brought a bunch, a bunch of clothing. Um, and and it was, uh, you know, kind of move, going around a little bit. Uh, I, I tried to actually wear several layers of clothing that I couldn't quite fit in my suitcase and my, my carry-on backpack. And then I had a big pair of winter boots that I wore through the airport because I didn't want to have to carry them, uh, and they didn't fit in my suitcase. So I getting through security was interesting. I had a, one of the just on the way out, the TSA patted me down pretty heavy, and uh, didn't like the idea. I guess that I was wearing all kinds of layers on my <laughs> on my torso, uh, but I got through it. Uh, didn't get I get X-rayed and patted down and X-rayed again, but. Uh, I got through it, and then uh, uh, on the way back, I, I kind of got through the same same sort of stuff, but made it through the security fine. Um, it was the first time that I've ever I'd flown a commercial airline in uh, about eight years, so it was a little bit of getting used to, but uh, everything kind of fell into place. Nothing got delayed or anything, so it was good. Very crowded on the plane. That cheap ticket means you get a middle seat every time, and you have essentially zero... Uh, services and and zero amenities so uh, you do pay a price for everything I guess Um, and uh, a bit of an uncomfortable ride from Boston to Seattle that was like six and a half hour flight on the way out that was nuts Uh, made it but it was uh, it it wears the guy out quite a bit got into Fairbanks about uh, 2 30 in the morning uh, and uh, that was that was pretty crazy it was 2:30 uh, Alaska time. Uh, that is actually that was actually 6:30 my time. So I started at 5 a.m. and by the time I got done completely done traveling, it was about 26 hours uh, to get there. I kept reminding myself that back in the old days, uh, it would have been weeks to get out there. So I should be should consider myself lucky <laughs> that I could get there in essentially a little over 24 hours. So. 
not too bad. Got into Fairbanks. Jim picked me up at the airport, and I stayed uh, at his place uh, in Fairbanks. And then we had we'd each booked uh, flight for the uh, the small plane to take us into the village the next day. So I uh, got up the next morning and and uh, we we got going, started talking trapping. We talked trapping for about three hours until we had to go in and uh, get to the airport and get ready for our flight. That was pretty cool. That was just a small uh, a prop plane, probably uh 12 10 or 12 passenger capacity i think there were like eight of us on the on the flight flew into a couple different villages um uh, one on the way and then and then we got into fort yukon so fort yukon it's i think it's about 150 air miles uh, northeast of fairbanks it's on the yukon river there are no roads going to it so air or boat are the only way to get there you could snowmobile in the winter time but it's a heck of a long snow snowmobile ride so uh, we got into the village and jim's got a place there he's lived there for decades and he got a, he got a place right in town in fort yukon so we were able to uh, to stay there the next night uh, after we'd flown in and then he had all the gear the snowmobiles the traps that well traps are out on the line but um, all of the the stuff that we needed to get going uh, on the trap line uh, right there in town. Uh, if you if you haven't heard much about Fort Yukon in the past, it, it was established as a trading post in the 1840s by the Hudson Bay Company back when travel was done on the river and furs were uh, one of the furs were more valuable than gold. Um, the, the trading companies uh, established that area because it was very rich in fur. There's lots of great habitat for fur bears in that entire Yukon Flats area that surrounds Fort Yukon, and there were tons of people trapping at the time. And it's kind of it kind of it was a trapping town for a very long time. Uh, the town has about 700 people now. Used to be every adult male in the town was a trapper or had trapped in their lifetime, and now there are only two or three or half a dozen. Uh, um, Jim and one or two other people are the only active trappers in the town and there's a few that uh, trap just occasionally they have family lines they just uh, when fur prices are low they don't bother running them when fur prices are high uh, they may or may not go out it's just trapping is just falling away it's it's no longer uh, a part of the culture it's a sort of what's happened in a lot of America so uh, that's just an area that it's it hung on for a lot longer um, and then, of course, you have uh, you still have a few families that go out in the bush and and live out there all winter long, uh, away from any type of village. They're in remote, isolated cabins, um, and those would be like your Hymo Korths, Hymo and Edna Korth from the Last Alaskans, also the Last Alaskans, Tyler and Ashley Selden, and Charlie Jagow. Uh, those are people that are that are typically staying out there for long periods of time uh, Jim is kind of goes back and forth he'll go out on the trap line for a couple weeks and come back into town and then go back out for a couple weeks come back into town for a week or whatever so um, he's kind of uh, kind of in between that but um, this is all new to me so I had read all the books I had uh, researched it I talked to people I dreamed about it and then but when I got there it was like boom here it is here you are, this is what it is. Uh, and it was really eye-opening. It was incredible. A lot of people asked me um, a couple of the questions I got, common questions when I got back. Uh, was it what you expected and would you do it again? Um, was it what you expected? It was better than I expected. Would you do it again? Absolutely, I would do it again. I don't know when I will do it again. Um, I don't know the logistics. I don't know when I can take the time and spend the money to do it again. Uh, and what the best uh, avenue is moving forward in terms of uh, where to go and when to go. And because, you know, there are a lot of different factors, uh, one of them being like links population cycles uh, and when it's more worth trapping than when it isn't worth trapping. Uh, but but yes, I would do it again. Yes, it was as good as I expected. It was actually better than I expected. Um, and uh, a lot of the challenges and the things I was nervous about turned out to be very manageable and very doable. So we'll go into all of that. Um, I'm going to take a, a real quick break here and then we'll uh, catch my breath and then we'll 
we'll start talking more details of the actual trapping. So I left uh, Maine on February 2, flew out, and I got to Fairbanks February 3, uh, flew into Fort Yukon February 4th, or February 3, February 3rd, uh, and went out to the trap line on snowmobile with Jim on February 4th. And so there, you notice there's a couple days on each end, two to three days on each end just of travel. So I actually was gone uh, the 2nd to the 20th, so I was gone for uh, like 19 days, but uh, probably uh, five or six of those were travel-related uh, days that only a couple of the travel days involved some level of trapping. So essentially I had two solid weeks of trapping. And actually two weeks of trapping gives you a lot of time. I didn't realize it. Uh, when I planned the trip at how much time I would actually have uh, uh, in in terms of doing being able to get stuff done I had way more time to get what I needed to get done to run those lines than I needed however it does not give you a lot of time in terms of fur bear movement and waiting for animals to come to your traps so it's a catch-22 uh, it, it's that's why it's very difficult to do a trip like this um, and try to catch big numbers of fur bears. Um, you almost would have to do like a couple of trips where you do one trip to get to get there and set out the line and then you you come back a, a couple weeks later and, and just run run a large portion of the line or a week later or whatever. Um, and that's not really feasible for, for us to do being long distances away from from Alaska. But Anyway, we headed out from the village uh, with snowmobiles, and uh, each snowmobile had a toboggan uh, fully loaded with uh, mostly gasoline, uh, <laughs> a little bit of food. Jim had food stashed up at the, the cabin, but uh, it takes a lot of gas, uh, and you got to bring everything out there because uh, you're not going to find a place to buy it <laughs> when you're out in the bush. Uh, there's nothing out there. Um, it is, it's incredibly uh, remote. But we left town uh, all bundled up, um, and we were basically 40 miles, 40 to 45 miles before we got to Jim's cabin on the Porcupine River between the, the Porcupine and the Shinjik Rivers in interior Alaska. And so we, a lot of, we, Fort Yukon is where, where the village is, is where the Porcupine meets the Yukon. And we traveled through the woods quite a ways, and then uh, a back slough, and then the rest of the trail was right on the river. So you're traveling up the river a very large uh, part of the way. Um, the Porcupine River is massive. It is absolutely huge. It is huge. Uh, it makes the Yellowstone River look small. Um, it's it's impressive. So uh, that was that was pretty cool just riding out there. Um, and, and I won't go into too many details here because uh, Jim and I sat down and we actually recorded three different times. Uh, beginning of the trip, middle of the trip, and toward the end before we left the cabin. Uh, we sat down in the evenings and recorded uh, podcast episodes. So uh, I don't want to uh, talk, you know, say a bunch of the same things twice. So I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more broad and overview type stuff on this episode and then in the next few weeks we'll get into more details but overall it was it was pretty awesome uh, you get out away from town uh, there's a lot of trails outside of town where people go and cut firewood for the most part and once you get beyond those areas uh, pretty much there's there's one or two tracks there's like one area where people go to go to a nearby village uh, Chalkitsik which I talked about in Hunters of the Northern Forest. And then beyond that, it's just open, and there's almost, there's Jim's track, and there's maybe there's one other sled that went up there. Pretty awesome. Um, pretty remote land. It, it is unbelievable. Um, just to, to um, give you an idea of how remote it is and how quiet it is up there, I was, I was there for two solid weeks at that cabin, and up and down the river, and in those entire in those two weeks, there was one guy that came went up the river on a snowmobile. We saw way off in the distance. There's a guy that has a cabin up river, and he was probably going out to check some wolf snares uh, or go look for wolves. He went up one evening, 
and the next morning he went back downriver, and that's the only human being we saw in those whole two weeks. And we didn't even really see him. He was way off in the distance. But that was the only sign of a human in those two weeks. It's just, it is absolutely the middle of nowhere. It's I I loved it. I I would thrive in that environment, man. I, I could I could spend the whole winter up there myself. I just absolutely loved it. It was so quiet and so beautiful. So um, I won't get in. I'll try to run you through the trip details a little more, and and then we'll I'll go over the overall impressions of uh, the area, but. The uh, so the 40 miles it used to be that Jim would go up there and there'd be a bunch of other trap lines on the way up to his line, so he just you know drive straight through. And over time, people have gotten out of trapping, old timers have died, no one's trapping those lines anymore, so he'll set traps along the river as he's going up to his cabin. So we actually had I don't know eight or ten spots that we stopped and uh, and checked traps on the way up. Uh, those, uh, that was like my first taste of Alaska lynx and wolverine trapping. Uh, I had never, you know, I'd see, you know, watch a few videos here and there. There actually, there really aren't a lot of videos out there in, for Alaskan and Canadian trapping. Probably, the, you know, I had, I had that Mike Gursky video that I bought, uh, from F&T, uh, about Canadian trapping. Um, and then, I don't. I'm sure there's some on Alaska trapping. I just don't know what they are. Uh, Andrew Stanley, The Wild North on YouTube, that is probably the best resource in terms of detailed explanation of different sets. And of course, Andrew does things a little different because he's in Canada and they have they have uh, different regulations and different types of traps they use. But uh, this was my real immersion into the Alaskan trapping, and it was awesome. This is a totally different type of trapping than I'm used to. So I might as well get into this right now. And I'm going to say this several times, and I don't. I, I want to give you just a little bit of a uh, upfront here. I'm not. I'm not saying this. Uh, I'm. I'm not talking down on other state regulations. I'm trying not to complain about specific trapping regulations in different states because. I understand that trapping regulations are in place for a reason. Modern trapping regulations, uh, it seems as though the majority of them are in place because of concerns um, with public perceptions of trapping and concerns over uh, wildlife management. In Alaska, you don't have the public perception or wildlife management issues that you have in a lot of other places. Uh, for instance, Alaska has, as far as I know, there's no endangered or threatened fur bears. I know there's no, there's there's nothing where we were trapping that was an endangered or threatened species or anything protected by the federal government. So that's not a concern. You're trapping in areas that nobody ever sees in the wintertime. They never go there. Um, so that's not a concern. There's not people like walking their dogs and, you know, these places are guys have trap lines. You get down near Anchorage and other places, more urban areas in Alaska, that does become a concern. But, uh, and there are ways that people are, are, there's issues with that as well. I won't get into that. But for the, for the most part, uh, Alaska is, is the last bastion, uh, for freedom when it comes to being a trapper. There are, very few regulations um, in in comparison with most of what we deal with in the lower 48. Now, if you're in Wyoming or Montana, uh, maybe Louisiana, uh, it, the, you know, it's pretty similar. You're not regulated too heavily. But it, most every other state, uh, for people that are listening to this, you're going to deal with quite a, a bit of stringent regulations that are going to make it challenging for you as a trapper to catch fur in a way that you could catch fur if you, you didn't have to deal with those or abide by those. So there, there are this, that I don't want to, I don't want to talk down about this because I understand there's reasons for regulations. You listen to Patrick uh, from Massachusetts. That's like the other extreme where you almost can't do anything. The reason for that is because most of the public in Massachusetts either doesn't know about trapping or opposes it. And so you're dealing with, you know, the laws, the regulations are made uh, by uh, people that vote and the politicians that they vote in. 
and so we we deal with the consequences of uh, public opinion. Uh, it, I I say that all to to just provide a little perspective when I say that this was unbelievably uh, refreshing to go to Alaska because when I when I was out there on the trap line, basically you you go into an area and you figure out how you're going to catch the animal and you don't have to spend a second of your time or energy thinking about whether it's legal or not. So uh, you you know you see a spot where a wolverine has walked through, which I did several times. See a set of wolverine tracks going through. You go over and you hook your trap uh, to a tree, uh, a double number four double long spring. You set it. You set that right on the top of the ground on the base of the tree, and you wire a piece of meat uh, up above uh, to the tree up above the trap. You put a few sticks in there to guide the animal over your trap, and you walk away. Um, you get 50 below weather, and you can't get out and move around. Your snow machine breaks down, or you know the animals aren't moving much. Um, you don't have a check law. You go back when you want to go back and check those traps. Um, the size of the trap is not regular. I think there there is like maybe a nine. It's a nine inch jaw spread restriction, something like that, or nine and a half. And essentially no no jaw spread restriction. That's all. Um, uh, you uh, trap chain staking, all that stuff. It's just all open to your imagination on what you believe is most effective way to get it done. You can use snares. There are no regulations that I could find in relation to snaring. Um, basically, uh, you can experiment with all different types of snare locks, cable size, cable type, uh, snare heights, snare diameters, uh, kill springs, just everything's on the table. And so um, it was such simple trapping and, and it was uh, it was enjoyable because you could just focus on having fun and catching the animal and seeing sign and making sets. So again, I'm not trying to talk down on other regulations uh, it, and because I know there are reasons for all those, but uh, Alaska is truly a free state when it comes to that stuff, and, and it was very refreshing to step back in time, maybe 50 years, um, and, and really uh, get to enjoy trapping without having all those different restrictions uh, on, on me. I'm not saying that I wouldn't uh, do things certain ways even though they're not regulated it's just a matter of uh, uh, not needing to be regulated in that manner uh, it was it was kind of nice so w w basically the the vast majority of what is on this trap line where we were is lynx and wolverine and, and lynx go in cycles so there's years where they're very abundant and there's years where they they're almost non-existent they follow the snowshoe hare population cycles when the hares are really abundant the lynx have a lot of food they reproduce successfully they survive well uh, in in high numbers and you have lots of lynx around when the hare population goes down the lynx all starve and uh, move out of the area or they starve to death or both and the the lynx population crashes so they go uh, boom and bust and the uh, the wolverine population doesn't seem to have cycles like that, but the wolverine population does seem to respond uh, somewhat to trapping pressure. So back in the day when there were lots of people trapping, there were still healthy populations of wolverines around, but they weren't nearly as abundant as they are today. Now nobody's out trapping, and the wolverines seem to be everywhere. Everywhere that we trapped, there were wolverines. It was, it was incredible. And Jim had already caught several before I got there. So um, the the lynx and wolverine were what we were targeting. There's also foxes. There's wolves. The fox numbers are way down. There's quite a f uh, average number of wolves. Uh, very 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 few marten where we were. And uh, lynx and marten don't seem to overlap much at all out there. Um, and uh, mar where there are lynx populations, usually the lynx are down in the flats in the low timbered areas and along the rivers and the marten are up in the hills in the mountains. Uh, there is some overlap, there's some exceptions to that, but that's pretty much a general rule. So where we were, we were in the flats and we were targeting lynx and wolverine. 
these are such simple, simple sets. And there's probably guys that are out there saying they have better ways of doing this and more effective or anything, but um, uh, th I kind of like this simple, uh, keep it simple, stupid. Um, you can make a bunch of quick sets. You're not worrying about uh, all kinds of rules, and you're not worrying about uh, trying to outsmart every single animal. You're just making a bunch of sets. And uh, th there's a few animals that are not. this is not going to work for, uh, if you want to, you can make other types of sets to deal with those animals. Um, go back if you want, if you're interested, listen to uh, the episode with Ron Jones. Uh, uh, way back early on in the podcast, Ron, we, we did like three different episodes. That was incredibly educational and informative. And Ron has a little different perspective than I had up in Alaska. Uh, his is, you know, you trap for the smartest animals and you catch them all. Um, and it doesn't take a whole lot of extra effort for, for uh, to catch the smartest animals. Uh, out here, um, that just, uh, I, I feel like it was going to, it would have taken a lot of extra effort to catch the smarter animals, uh, the way that we did things. Um, and the way we did we set traps was just so, 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 so simple. It was so quick. Uh, I would highly recommend it <laughs> um, in, those, in that situation. Basically, go to an area where you see link sign, and you follow a set of lynx tracks into the woods, or you just follow kind of a trail area into the woods. Um, it's it's super dry climate. There's not a lot of snow. There's probably a foot and a half of snow there, even though it hasn't been above freezing since like early October. Um, you you got like a foot and a half of snow. You walk through an area. You pack down a trail. Maybe you walk up about you know 30 yards, walk back, and then walk back through. You've packed down a trail through uh, an area that's kind of uh, a natural funnel and the lynx are going through there hunting for rabbits and they catch onto your trail uh, and they follow your trail because it's much easier walking than the rest of the deep snow. Uh, they follow your trail, you set snares in that trail. Um, you don't have to use any lure, you don't have to use any bait, you can if you want to. But the one of the simple sets that we had was just walk, over, walk through, pack down a trail, and set one, two, or three snares in that trail. Uh, seven or eight inch loop, 11 inches off the ground to the bottom of the wire, uh, one by 19 cable, and uh, there you go, have a nice day. Um, that was that was the snaring setup. There are a few other situations that where we do a little bit different things with snaring, but uh, it was that those, those trails where the critters were moving through, and then our snowmobile trails that were nice and hard packed that uh, the animals would also follow. Uh, for the baited sets, it was uh, usually double long spring traps, number fours, a few number threes, and uh, number three or number four coil springs occasionally. And that was um, set, uh, find, use like a, a log, a tree for backing typically, um, a few blocking sticks to make kind of a cubby. Some people, and Jim did this in the past, like make super elaborate cubbies, and you can do that. But if you're doing 50 of these, you know, it's you could just make a few sticks. You just put a few sticks there, um, use the tree as your backing, and you've got a cubby pretty simple. Um, and it works very, very effectively. I can attest to that. Take your, Set your trap. Set your trap. Uh, pat down the snow with your hand. Set your trap right on top of the snow. Push it in a little bit. No real bedding. Uh, might put a stick in front of the loose jaw. You put a stick here and there to guide their foot. Make sure they want to step on the pan. They're, the lynx and wolverine, the the vast majority of them are not trap shy at all. Later in the season, you may get into a few that are, are going to be a little trap shy. But uh, for the most part, they're not even going to worry about that. They're going to step right on that pan of that bear trap completely exposed. Your bait, your lure. Uh, most of the lynx sets, we didn't even use bait. We used some sort of a bobcat lure. There were a few different uh, brands that we used. They're really not even going to mention them. doesn't even matter. I'll mention them in future episodes, but uh, brand doesn't matter. Uh, just anything that has some beaver caster in it uh, or some sort of bobcat or lynx. Uh, usually bobcat glands or beaver caster. Something to make them curious. Something that they're going to put their nose on or they'll rub. A lot of times they'll kind of rub their face against the, the, the side of the tree. Uh, and to get there close to where they can rub, they get a step on the trap. Other times we'll take a piece of bait and wire it to the tree above the trap 
and that's going to be usually a piece of lynx meat because that is the most uh, readily available type of bait that you have because we're catching lynx. So I, I followed on a bunch of these sets on our way up to the cabin and uh, we had one, we finally got to an area like two, two uh, short distance uh, before we got to the cabin and uh, we had a triple. <laughs> My very first uh, experience of a caught animal in Alaska was three lynx and three traps or a trap and two snares. It was incredible. So uh, the two snared lynx were dead, and the lynx was alive, and the third one was alive in the trap. Uh, that was just amazing. So uh, quite an experience. We we got three lynx before we even got to the cabin. Um, we get to the cabin. Uh, it's you know a little ways off the river, but it's right next to the Porcupine River, uh, and it is kind of the base center of operations that we spent the next two weeks trapping out of. And we had these lines all scattered uh, in different directions from the cabin. Jim had some of these already set up before I got there. And then we spent a bunch of time, uh, we spent several days cutting out uh, old lines uh, that he hadn't visited for four years uh, at a minimum. And we cut those, uh, brushed those out, cut trees, cut brush, opened them up and set traps on those. So a few days of... Uh, just setting up, setting traps, and then it was just a matter of running the traps, uh, uh, running different lines in different areas, um, and and setting new, making new sets where we found more sign. Um, this was awesome. So we did basically all those trap, those sets that I explained were the vast majority of what we made. Also got to make uh, three or four. I made four. 330 sets for Wolverine um, did not connect on any of those while I was there but uh, as I record this Jim is probably going to be headed up there anytime to check those traps and the Wolverine should there were three or four separate Wolverine uh, sets of Wolverine tracks and sign uh, that have a chance of getting back into sets that I made so I'm really excited to to hear what he says if if he ends up uh, catching catching wolverines in those sets that I made, um, I got yeah I got lots of stories. I think I I talked about it in the in the last episode with Jim, so I won't get into it. But um, we caught uh, total catch. We caught uh, around either ten or twelve lynx and a wolverine while I was there. Um, it's always been a dream of mine catch a wolverine. I've always thought that would be the ultimate. Um, I went home with a few links, but I, I did not feel right taking that Wolverine because it was caught in a set that Jim had set and he had checked it. Um, I didn't really have any part to play as, in terms of, um, of, of earning that catch. <laughs> and so um, he offered it to me and I couldn't take it. It's a $500 Wolverine and he spent so much money helping me get me out there and stuff that I, I just couldn't stand to take it. So um, um, left that there in Alaska, uh, but I, I, at the time I really thought I was convinced that I was going to catch a Wolverine on my own on sets that I had made and sets that I checked, and in fact I did. However, I didn't hold the son of a gun. Um, I caught a Wolverine in two separate traps, and he pulled out of both of them, uh, believe it or not. They're incredibly strong, vicious animal, and incredibly frustrating animal to deal with when when they get out of your traps. Um, so that's a, that's a story I'll talk about a little more in the future. But overall, uh, the scenery is incredible. Guys, uh, Alaska in the middle of the winter, when you get below 20, below zero, it's so cold, the air is just crystal clear, and it's dry. The climate's dry up there. Uh, when you get those sunny, clear days, it's just unbelievable. You just sit there. I just sit there, and I can watch... Like when the sun comes out, I can watch the sun hitting the trees, and it's just so crystal clear, and every the imagery is so much more vivid than it, anywhere else that I've been. I I don't know if other people have noticed that, but to me I, that really stuck out at me. Uh, the the flats uh, when you when you hear people talk about the Yukon flats, you know one image that comes to mind is maybe like just swampland. It's 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 nowhere near swampland. It is a river, backwater sloughs, and lakes, 
and tons and tons and tons of water but it is it is uh, topography you know steep banks uh, boreal forest a lot of uh, old uh, spruce forest black spruce forest just uh, beautiful beautiful ground it, it's rolling moves uh, a lot of changing terrain changing vegetation types the habitat is incredible it is really really varied habitat it's it's not this uh, barren wasteland that you might think about i can see why uh you know hudson bay like this area number one you got such a good variety of habitat um, and even though you're not going to see the density of fur bears that you have in southern climates because of you know just you know, it's easier you know there's more food available in southern climates but for the area you have a very large high relatively high density of fur bears and the fur is unbelievably superior to anything else uh, anything in the lower 48 um, and you know you're not the links aren't going to get prices that your western bobcats are going to get but the fur the primeness of that lynx fur it should be worth way more than it is in my opinion um, it is incredible how thick I mean, you can lose your hand inside in one of those uh, lynx pelts. It's it's amazing. Such high quality fur. It was it was just awesome fur to work with and and to and to get a chance to help harvest. Uh, and the wolverine, of course, you know, very rare, very rare animal. Um, they don't live in a lot of places, but they're they're quite abundant in in a lot of places in Alaska. So the habitat in the fur bears was uh, one of my impressions and, and uh, you know, really great habitat, relatively good fur bear abundances. Uh, that being said, it is, uh, it is pretty, pretty hungry land and there's, uh, you know, everything's hungry and, and everything's a lot of stuff, a lot of critters out there starving and there are periods of time and there are areas that you go long distances without seeing any any sign of fur bears there's just not a lot there and then there's other areas where you have pockets of them you know they're moving around a lot so you got to follow them and and find the pockets um, i touched on the beauty of the area i touched on the remoteness we were basically the only people up there and that is just that is absolutely my style i touched on the regulations the one thing i haven't touched on is the temperature um, so and, and the regulation i mean I could see how a guy could really run a, a, a super long line. If you had all the traps and you had a base area, I could see, you know, you hear about the old timers catching 200, 300 links in a season. When you had really high population densities, you know, this year the links numbers are, are going down. Uh, two years ago, I think they were about peak. Um, they're on their way down. They, you know, they're going to get worse the next few years. Uh, that's one of the reasons I, I don't know if I'll be back in the next couple of years, because uh, they they are going to decline, and it's going to be twice as much effort for half as much fur, uh, unless you go in an area that's got something different, like Martin, for instance. Um, but uh, the based using those regulations and in an area with good fur bear numbers, where you have a lot of place to trap. 200 links is not out of the question. I, I really don't think it is. If a guy stayed there through the whole winter and, and worked really hard, I, I really think you could get that done. Um, now, $60 a lynx. Uh, you could average 100 in a good fur market year. Um, actually, in 2014, around that area, I can't remember the exact years, but they were going uh, 200 bucks a piece for those links. Um, but, you know, if you, if you averaged, uh, you know, 200 times 50 what's that 10 grand i mean that uh, the gas is six dollars and something cents a gallon uh you're you're a long ways from anything you have to have a place to stay uh you gotta you gotta bring in all this extra gear and supplies and traps and i mean you're you're out there you're not working a regular job um unless you can you know the dream out there. I think a lot of guys do it as uh, two on, two off, or week on, week off, and you could kind of work that in, or you, you know you could trap with a partner, and uh, they can check on your your weeks you're working, and then your your week you're off. You could you could check, um, so you could you know, you could do that thing. But you know, thinking about it, if you're just full time trapping there, um, ten grand, ten ten fifteen grand isn't a whole lot when you're giving up you got all the expenses and then you're giving up 
a whole winter's worth of potential income you could make elsewhere. So you really got to love it. But uh, I could see how, how that's a place where guys can still still make a part of their living trapping because the fur is there, the regulations are, are make it such that you can, you can do that. And, uh, and there's just so, so much area, so much area that's not being trapped. So, um, the final thing I wanted to mention is the temperature because, uh, you know, one of the reasons I scheduled this for later in the season was that it was going to be a little bit warmer because I, I looked at the average temperatures in, uh, in Fort Yukon, Alaska for February and the average low is overnight is about 20 below and the average high is around zero. And, you know, I'm in Northern Maine and I, I, you know, I've heard guys say, oh, we get 50 below. We're all tough. Not really guys. I mean, think about it. I've, I've seen 40 below in Northern Maine like once in the last five years. Uh, I got to, when I was gone, it got to like, my wife said it got to like six, 36, 36 below. That's the coldest it's been all winter. I don't think it ever got to 36 below last winter and maybe not even the winter before. So, you know, we think we're tough, but when you go up there, it's a whole new level of tough, uh, 40, 50 below stuff just stops working. So I battled, I battled 40, 50 below. It was supposed to be, you know, zero to 20 below. The first week was nice. It was zero to, you know, 15 below to 15 above thereabouts. But then the second week we got this big cold snap. When I got back, people were telling me, oh yeah, we were watching the weather forecast. You must've had a lot of fun there. And it was uh, three days in a row that it got, uh, that it was 50 below. Um, the highs during the day might've been like 35 below, um, uh, 20, 20 to 35 below. And so it was, it was a challenge. Uh, it is brutal, but the thing is you prepare for it. So I had every single piece of clothing on that I had, um, that I owned and that I borrowed from Jim and to where you can barely, even your arms are kind of like going out. Uh, you could barely move. Uh, I had three, one morning I had three sets of, uh, toe warmers in my boots and hand warmers in my hands, my, in my gloves. And, uh, everything is slow. You got to keep moving. You can't sit there on the sled and, and, uh, be going down the river and not, uh, using, you know, not creating, uh, uh, generating any body heat. You have to be moving. And we spent an hour, 45 minutes to an hour each morning preheating the snowmobile just so we could start it. One morning we didn't even go. We didn't all day. Didn't do anything that whole day. Just sat in the cabin all day. I ended up going walking. Uh, I was just going stir crazy. as it, it was driving me nuts. And I just went out and walked a few miles to check a few traps and set some rabbit snares. And uh, that was that was my accomplishment for the day. Cut some firewood. Uh, but... You know that sometimes you just can't go. It's it's so cold. But I I guess the point I'm trying to make is that yes, it is brutally cold, and yes, you don't want any exposed skin because it will freeze. But you can. It is handleable. It's manageable. If you have a place to go in and get warm, if you have the right clothing, and uh, you know I was having circulation issues. I've been getting cold hands and feet for uh, basically the past uh, almost a year, and I was really concerned about it. But I felt no less comfortable up there than I feel here. And the reason is I had more clothing and I was more prepared for it. So uh, it, it is it is all doable. Like a, a, a friend of mine over here said, uh, he, he said, he said, hey, he's watched the, he watches the last of the Alaskans and Life Below Zero and all that. And he says, if they can do it, I could do it. And that's absolutely right. You know, uh, everybody that's up there in Alaska, you know, they, they, they're just like you and me. Um, that they've they've learned to cope with it and we all could as well but uh it does take a little getting used to and you have to be prepared for sure uh and you, and you have to be ready to start a fire um and if you get in a jam if you go through the ice if your sled breaks down you got to be ready to deal with that but um but but it's all doable it's all manageable and it's all about your perspective a lot of this stuff is so with that, guys, I was going to get into some other stuff. Uh, we've got state fur auction results. We've got updates from Fur Harvester's auction. Uh, I'm going to probably talk about those in uh, the next episode. We're getting long here tonight. 
you can go to furharvesters.com. The auction's coming at the end of March. There's a bunch of press releases and updates there about the fur market. I have some opinions on those, particularly the most recent update that they put out. Um, but yeah, uh, pay attention to fur harvesters. I hope you ship some fur there. If you haven't, uh, you need to keep an eye on things and pay attention to see what happens because if you've got more fur ready to go, they're going to have an auction in sometime in May uh, that you'll still have an opportunity to, to ship fur to uh, depending on whether you like the results of this coming auction. This is really going to set the price, uh, set the market for wild fur uh, for the rest of the year and probably a good part of next year uh, the results of this auction we get this coronavirus we get all kinds of stuff going on the global economy is is uh, looking down right now so so we don't know what's going to happen um, I, I I still remain somewhat optimistic I think we're going to see uh, some some price increase from the last uh, round of auctions um, it, or, or at least stable prices from what we've seen before, despite uh, weakening economic conditions. But I don't know that for sure. None of us really know. Um, but stay tuned. We'll talk more about fur prices in the future. But I hope you enjoyed this uh, Alaska podcast and, and now realize, if you hadn't already, what I was doing uh, the last few weeks uh, when I, I mentioned I was going to be gone. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. You got any questions, you got comments, love to hear from you, jrodwood at gmail.com. Support our sponsors, new sponsor on X. Remember to go and check them out, onxmaps.com, and use the promo code TRAP. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode.